What a beautiful morning to worship the Lord. Of course, any worship day, first day of the week is a beautiful morning, no matter what it's doing outside, but I am speaking specifically in reference to the weather this morning. I know that some of you were mentioning, I won't say complaining, mentioning how cold it was last week and probably, according to the weather reports, if they're anywhere near right, we'll probably be commenting on that again about Wednesday, but I want to start this morning by talking to you about real cold. In March of 1996, for those of you that were around then, John Krakauer was part of an expedition to the top of Mount Everest. That following year, in 1997, he wrote a book called Into Thin Air. They later made that into a movie. Now, I don't know if the title Into Thin Air was simply because they obviously went into thin air, or if it had something to do with their having to get acclimated, as many of you probably know if you've spent any time at all studying some of these climbing expeditions. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll go to a base camp and they'll have to wait a day or two, let their bodies become acclimated to the thinner air and, and then move on up the mountain, that sort of thing. But despite their probably having been acclimated, the documentary based on that book detailed how eight people died in that particular trip up the mountain in just one day. That year, in fact, there were 15 total deaths of climbers on Everest. The, as the story goes, they faced wind chills of 40 below zero. Now let's talk cold. Okay, it gets to a certain point where it don't matter, it's just cold. That was cold. According to time.com, there has been a total number of 291 deaths climbing Mount Everest. 291. 166 deaths just since the beginning of that particular year's expeditions in 96. I believe, if I recall correctly, that one of the men in that expedition said it was just easier to die than to continue on. As I recall, there was another man who, knowing he was dying and there was no help coming, and as he sat there in a snowbank, he called his wife to comfort her and to tell her that he loved her. And then he put the phone down and froze to death in the snowbank he was in. Years later, there was another expedition, there was another um, account entitled Into the Death Zone that came out. And that chronicled the death of a young, inexperienced female Canadian woman who climbed the mountain, made it to the top, but she died before she could get down. So I say all of that to say this. I use that as an illustration to say this. Sometimes in our lives, we face a lot of storms. We face some overwhelming storms that can just seem like into the death zone for us, can just seem like, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Man, this is just difficult. And you know, despite the acclimation we're given, we're all given acclimation to trials, right? We all have enough trials and troubles and problems and burdens in our lives. You'd think we'd get acclimated after a while, right? But boy, some of them are just so big and so heavy, those storms when they come in. We can get to the point where we're beaten down and we just, we feel like 
I just can't keep going. I just, this is so difficult, I just can't do it. Elijah faced that very thing in 1 Kings chapter 19. We've talked about that before. Elijah got there. The point of this lesson this morning is I want to encourage everybody in this room, every last one of you, and especially those of you that might possibly be in the midst of a killer storm in your life right now, I preach this lesson to encourage you to take a look at some of those in the scriptures who have been in that very same situation and have not only survived, but have come to thrive because of God's help in their life. Please open your Bibles this morning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The first one that I'd like for us to take a look at who was basically, if I can use the terminology from that, that later account that came out, Paul felt like he's in a death zone. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. You can read about that if you'd like later on in Acts 19, 23 through 41. Continuing on with verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, he says that we were burdened beyond measure. We, we, infinitely. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, watch this, so that we despaired even of life. You want to talk about a problem? You want to talk about into the death zone? Paul was there. One version translates this sentence, the second part of verse 8, Thus, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired, even of life. Indeed, the Apostle Paul was under great pressure during that time, as he so often was. But, but one thing to keep in mind, without great pressure, a worthless old lump of coal does not become a priceless diamond. It is only through pressure that a lump of coal becomes a priceless diamond. Notice from that verse, whichever translation you're using, this great pressure that they were under was so vast that he says it was, we couldn't measure it. There's no, there's no measure to it. It was far and above beyond their ability and strength to endure, to even endure, let alone deal with it. Paul doesn't say it was far above and beyond our ability to thrive in, to come out of. He says to even endure, to even go through. He said it's so bad, we despaired, even of life. His death zone, no way out, no way through, and no way they were going to make it. There was nowhere to go. Paul says, it was a hopeless situation. There was nowhere to go. There was no way out. There was no way through in this, this awful thing. Verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Paul says we were done. We were cooked. It was over. Survival was inconceivable. But here's the good news I want you to see this morning. 
Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, he says. Why, Paul? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. That's why we were allowed to go through it. That's why we were allowed to be in this terrible place where we despaired even of life, so that we would learn not to trust ourselves, but so that we would fully rely on God. Brethren, faith is not faith until it's all you've got to hang on to. Understand that. If you have an alternative plan, it is not the ultimate or the Almighty's plan. If you have a backup plan, it is not a faithfully move forward plan. Remember the sermon I preached quite a while ago, let go of the branch? Guy's out climbing, falls downside the cliff, grabs onto a branch, says, hey, is there anybody up there? Voice booms out and says, I'm up here, and, and says, the guy on the branch says, hey, help me out. And the voice says, let go of the branch. Dead silence for a minute. Guy cries out, anybody else up there? Sometimes we want to do that with God when God says let go of the branch. Faith is not faith until it's all we've got left. And, and Paul says, God did this. He allowed this so we would learn to more fully trust in him. The point of verse 9 is as if that we have faith in God the way we'd ought to. If we have the strong faith in God that, we have, that we'd ought to, we don't have to fear the worst. We don't have to fear the storm. We don't have to fear... Even death itself. Isn't it wonderful to know that we spend our lifetimes building up our faith, being strengthened in our faith by God, God taking us through all of these terrible things, so that when we get to the point that we're on our deathbed, that we don't have to fear. That's how I want to be on mine. I don't have to fear. Wouldn't that be awesome? So many people, even Christians, perish and they're, they're scared to death. But God's trying to build our faith so that when we despair even of life, we don't have to fear. That's the point of verse 9, brethren. We don't have to fear even death itself, let alone anything less. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 10, 24 through 39. Did you know that in a sense that you and I are all sentenced to death on a daily basis? Did you know that? Psalm 44 and verse 22, which the Apostle Paul later quotes in Romans 8.36, says this, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Romans 8.36, quoting again Psalm 44 and verse 22. Remember, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to deceive, destroy, and devour. And Satan sees you and I like helpless little sheep just to be slaughtered on a daily basis. And according to Romans 8, Satan doesn't say Satan there, but it says tribulations and all of that. But, but Satan will use our tribulations. He'll use our problems. He will use our distresses, our persecutions. He'll use things like famine, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword to try to separate us from the love of God. That's what Romans 8, 35 through 39 tells us. He'll try to use those things to separate us from the love of God. He'll try to use peril and danger and stormy, bad, if I can use the terminology death zone, these overwhelming problems. He'll use those to try to get us to doubt God. That's what Satan wants to do, to get us to doubt and distrust God. Satan wants us to quit and give up on God, and so he allows or causes 
I should say, some of these terrible things. Look what Paul says here. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look what he says in verses 9 and 10 combined. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who, watch this now, delivered us from so Gary to death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Wow. That sounds just like David with Goliath. The whole point being, Paul says that their past delivery was their current hope for future victory. Never lose sight of that. Their past victory was their current hope for future victory. You can see the tenses right there in that verse. Looking at what God has done, is doing, and has promised he will continue to do for us is what keeps us getting back up when the storm rages. It's what keeps us getting back up to watch God work and to watch because we know what God's done for us before. We know what he's done. We've just celebrated this morning what he's done for us on the cross. We know how much God loves us. We know what he's done in our lives. And so looking at what he has done and he is doing as he ever lives to intercede for us, Knowing what he has promised to do, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. That's what keeps us getting back up when we are in the worst of storms. Verse 11, look at what it says. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted us through many. This is why prayer in number by the saints of God is so important. Look at verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Very important lesson here in verse 12. And that lesson is this. No matter what you're going through, they said they had been in problems where they despaired even of death. No matter what on earth you were going through, and even should you have the sentence of death in yourself, you still have the responsibility to treat others in a godly and Christ-like fashion, no matter what you're going through. That's the point of verse 12. There are five things, for those of you who are taking notes, there are five things in this text that God's faithful people, this seems to be a pattern for them. Certainly, there are five things here that always ought to mark the true people of God, the people after God's own heart. And they're what I call the faithful's five. The faithful's five. And these are those. Or, those are these. Number one, desperate problems. Just because you're a child of God don't mean you ain't going to have problems. Desperate problems, number one. Number two, deadly peril. Number three, deliberate prayers. Number four, deliverance by providence. And number five, as we saw in verse 12, number five, divine purity when dealing with people. 
We see these in the lives of God's faithful in the Bible, and we should be seeing them in the lives of one another here and do in this congregation. But I'd like to spend kind of the rest of this morning chronicling how these five fit one man. And, and I want us to look at when he was in his death zone, if you will, when, when his problems were just overriding, I want you to look at how he survived the storm. And that man is David, man after God's own heart. He experienced and endured a whole lot. He endured and experienced the faithful five that we just mentioned. And he came through his death zone, if you will, where the storms were raging horrifically around him. He came through stronger and more faithful to God than ever as those storms faded behind him on his road to his eternal reward. The way I'd like to look at that this morning is by combining the biblical historical record with the Psalms David wrote while he was going through them. That's the way we're going to do this. Take a look at the biblical historical record of David's life and then go some of the, to some of the Psalms that explain what his mindset was when he was going through these things. Now, quick note. The language of the Psalms, the divinely inspired record itself, does not detail the specific, historic, horrific events and circumstances either in which they were written or for which they were written. In other words, the Psalms themselves don't start out, I, David, wrote this when I was going through this. It, it doesn't work that way. However, however, in most Bibles, you will find at the top a line or two that human men, not divinely inspired, but that human men over the years have come to understand were written in certain circumstances. And we'll see how that works here briefly. In fact, I'll give you one example. Turn to me to Psalm 51. Your Bible may or may not have these little snippets of introduction above the Psalms, but most of them, I believe, do. If you turn to Psalm 51 and your Bible has these little headings over the psalm, mine says this. And again, not divinely inspired. Don't go out here and say, Doug, well, Doug said that these were written, by, no, no, these were written by just mere men, people who studied, people who understand the historical context of the Psalms. Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now. If that is indeed the case, as most believe it was, it lends a whole lot more power to the words of this psalm as you read it when you understand the background circumstances to it. When you understand that this was a psalm where David was brokenhearted because he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he's just pouring his heart out to God and how heartbroken he is, how, how much he's trying to repent with everything in his body. When you understand the sin that is the one that is likely the one that led to this psalm, it gives more power to that psalm, power to that psalm. See how that works? And so what I'd like for us to do again this morning is to take a look at the record of David's life and some of these psalms that he is believed to have written when he was in these death zones. Because if we can just come to understand how this great man of faith, this man after God's own heart, if we can come to understand, we think of David, we, how often do we think of David? Man, he struggled just like I do. 
We don't, but he did. David struggled. David was flesh and blood just like you and me. If we can understand that he struggled the same as we do, and yet he was continually delivered from his desperate problems and his deadly peril by the providence of God, and how, it should help us when we're in our storms. That's the whole point. And it should show us the plight and heart of David, the power and the hand of God, and the peace and hope that we can possess even in our worst of storms because God is faithful. And so let us begin. Please turn to me this morning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, the book that we are studying in the Tuesday morning class. We'll begin in 1 Samuel chapter 16. A lot of these chapters and their contents I'm going to abbreviate because I want to get to the Psalms that we're addressing these situations in. 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you want to follow along. David was anointed as the next king. Now, it would be a while before he actually became king in the full sense of the word, but in chapter 16, he's anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David defeats Goliath. We're all familiar with that story. In 1 Samuel 18, after he has defeated Goliath, David becomes King Saul's servant. And David prospers wherever he goes because of his relationship with God. <coughs> Look with me in 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. He's a servant of David, a servant of Saul, prospers wherever he goes because of God. 1 Samuel 18, let's take a look at verses 5 through 9. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands. And David, his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they, they've ascribed only thousands? What, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. The next few verses, Saul tries to spear David to death. Look with me in verse 14 and following. But David, and David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Verses 17 through 27. Again, we see that Saul sets a trap for David, tries to get David killed by the hand of the Philistines, verse 25. But that didn't work. Look at verses 28 and 9 of chapter 18. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Please notice that the text does not say 
David became Saul's enemy. David, David wasn't looking to make an enemy at all. David was being, he was respectful of King Saul, the anointed one of God. He was very respectable, respectful. But at the same time, Saul became David's enemy throughout. Now, in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, the first nine verses, Saul seeks to get David killed again. Then he relents. David has another victory over the Philistines. And look what happens in verses 10 through 12 of 1 Samuel 19. Look in verses 10 through 12. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. He's doing it again. But he slipped away from Saul's presence. He drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. This is, again, Saul's trying to kill him. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Do you understand the situation David's in? The king tried to kill him a couple times, pin him to wall with a spear. And now the king has sent people to his house. How would you like your house surrounded and somebody, there's a whole posse around your house and they're gunning for you and in the morning they're going to they're kill you. And this was real. We read this and we say, well, yeah, that's David and blah, blah, blah. It's a real situation. They're, they're going to kill him. He is in the death zone. He's going to die. As far as they're concerned. David's plight is horrible. And his wife says, look, they're going to kill you in the morning. You're going to die. The only chance you got is to run for your life. None of us have probably ever had to run for our lives. David had to run for his life. He had to leave his wife behind. He had to leave his household behind. This is an awful situation. What's David's mindset? What's David thinking while he's running from, from his home and his wife and his house and, and from the king that he's only served and done so well? What's David's mindset? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. We're going to go back and forth between Psalms and 1 Samuel. Psalm 59. Look at the superscription at the top if your Bible contains one. To the chief musician set to do not destroy, a victim of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. This psalm is believed to have been written with David's thoughts process and what he had in mind when these men were surrounding his house that night. What would your mindset be? Really, in your storm, if it was this big, what would your mindset be? Look at what David's was. <laughs> I love David. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin. Oh, Lord, David understands he's done nothing wrong, but they're still trying to kill him. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, what's David's cry? God, I know I'm innocent in this. Help me. Help me. And look at verses 14 through 17. Speaking of those men who surrounded 
And at evening they return, they growl like a dog, they go all around the city, they wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. David said, they're there, they're surrounding, they're, they're gonna tear me up. God, what am I gonna do? What do you do when your life's in that situation? I'll tell you what David did, or better yet, I'll let God tell you. Look at the next couple of verses. David said, but I will sing of your power. Isn't that awesome? But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. David said, David, while he's running for his life, sing about how awesome God is. Isn't that great? That's how he survived his storm. He looked at everything God had done for him. And he's singing of God's mercy. Back to 1 Samuel. So David escaped Saul, but at awful cost, had to leave his home and his wife behind. Still doesn't know what he's done to deserve what's being done to him. Chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 3. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Have you ever wondered why somebody was out to get you and you have no earthly clue? That's David. So Jonathan said to him, by no means you'll not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. Why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. David, uh, Saul's own son said, nah, that's not going to happen. He'd tell me. David took an oath again and said, your father... <laughs> certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes, and he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's a step between me and death. He's in his death zone. He said there's one step between me and death. It could come any moment. I am in deadly peril here. In chapter 21, David goes to Nob and Ahimelech, not Abimelech, two different people. Ahimelech the priest gives him the sword of Goliath. David flees again. He's running for his life. He goes to King Ashish of Gath, a city of the Philistines. Now what's ironic about this is a couple chapters earlier, David's killed 200 Philistines and now he's fleeing to the King of Gath, which is a city of Philistia. And talk about despairing for your life. It's pretty bad, pretty bad when you've got to run for refuge to the enemy you hate so much, you've just killed 200 of his men, just say, or 200 men of that country. But David is in desperate straits here, and so he runs. And it's so bad that he pretends in chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, to be insane for the king of Gath. What was he thinking? Psalm 34 tells us, please turn there. Psalm 34. David, what were, you, what, what were you doing? Well, superscription, and if they are correct, the psalm was written about that very thing. Psalm 34 says a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, same as Ashish, who drove him away and he departed. What, what's David's mindset? What's he thinking? Look, look at this. Don't, don't miss this in your storm. Look at David. All he's lost, all the running he's done, he's one step ahead of death. The king's out to get him. What, what, what's the first line? 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Isn't that beautiful? My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David's thoughts are totally on the goodness of God. He says, why don't you come join me in celebrating God? David, wait, David, don't you understand? Look at all the losses. My eyes are on God. And I am going to magnify his name. I'm going to... And it's, why do people... Why do people, when they're going through the worst troubles of their life, stop coming to church? The one time they need to be here the most, they let Satan convince them not to come. What is the deal with that? Not David. Look what David said. David is just so grateful in spite of all he's lost. He says, I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. David. Yeah, but what about Saul, David? He's, he's after. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Can we say that? Can we say that in the middle of our worst storms? Can we say to somebody, oh, taste and see how good the Lord is? We can if we're looking only at him. If we're looking at our troubles, we can't. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts him. David said, I still trust him totally. Doesn't matter what I've had to leave behind. Doesn't matter what's, what's gone or what it's cost me. I trust God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. David said, I'm not lacking anything. And I love verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could have this time machine where we could go back and sit at the feet of King David and listen to all of his godly wisdom? Wouldn't that be cool? You know what? We don't need one. Because right now we get to sit at the feet of David. What does David say? He says, come to me, and I will teach you. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David said, come, come sit. Come, come, come listen. Come listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I'll teach you how to do this. That's what this lesson this morning's about. And he says, who is the man who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What do we say sometimes when people accuse us of things? You ever heard the saying, if I'm going to have the name, I'm going to have the game? You ever heard that? Say, well, somebody's going to blame me for being like that. I'm going to be like that. Ain't what David said. David was being blamed for something he didn't know. All he'd done was the right thing. And he says, you know what I'm going to continue to do? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil. Seek peace and pursue it. He said, that's, that's, you want to learn how to deal with these situations? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. David says, I know God's got this, and I trust him that he's got this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their... Is that verse true? It's black and white, ain't it? 
You all seeing it in your Bibles? Yep. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Just because you're living a godly life does not mean you're not going to have trouble. In fact, look at Job, look at a number of others, look at this text. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David didn't say, well, this must all be happening to me because I'm a rotten person who ain't doing God's will. That's not what he said. David knew he had tried to serve God. David didn't say, I'm rotten, so God's getting even with me. That wasn't the case at all. He said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You live for God, and there's still going to be bad people who want to do bad things to you. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Verse 23, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. None of them. Does that include you? Does that include me? None of them who trust God are going to be condemned. Wow, David. Wow. And he says, I'm one of them. King Saul is pursuing him, trying to kill him. The king of Gath has driven him away. <laughs> and all David can do is praise the Lord. What is wrong with him? Not a thing. Would that we could be as wrong, quote unquote, as David. David, you've lost everything. God's got this. If there ever was a psalm that said, those who stay faithful and devoted and obedient to God throughout the worst storms of their lives will be rewarded by God, this is it. Look again at verses 17 through 22. You think Job would agree with verses 17 through 22? Uh-huh. What about Joseph? You suppose Joseph would agree with, oh yeah. We know David did. What about the Apostle Paul? You think the Apostle Paul would agree with verses 17 through 22 that, that God delivers the righteous, that he's near those who have a broken heart, that the Lord delivers the righteous out of their afflictions, that he redeems the souls of his saints? Do you suppose the Apostle Paul would agree with that? Yeah, he did, because it's all divinely inspired. One author, many men, but still. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, Doeg the Edomite tells Saul where David is hiding. Doeg the Edomite tells Saul that David has gone to Nob and he's received help there, and so King Saul pursues him to Nob, and Doeg the Edomite slays 85 of those priests who were friendly toward David as well as having the entire city. Doeg has, uh, or, or King Saul through Doeg, has the entire city, men, women, children, and livestock, according to that chapter, just wiped out. These were people who supported David, largely. What was David's focus? Turn with me to Psalm 52, and I'll show you. Psalm 52. The superscript says to the chief musician, a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Your friends that have helped you, your friends that have supported you, they've all been killed because they supported you. 
That's where you are if you're David. What are David's thoughts? Verse 1 of Psalm 52 and following. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. Remember, Doeg had told Saul where David was getting help. But David says, God's got this. Or if I use David's words, verse 5 and following, you shall God shall likewise destroy you forever. He'll take you away, pluck you out of your dwelling place, and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and laugh at him, saying, here's the man who didn't make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. And I love the way he closes it. Look at these last two verses. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. What's David saying? <coughs> David's saying you can do all the bad stuff you want to do. You can cause all the hate and evil and misery and death that you want to cause, but I'm telling you right now, number one, God will take care of it and you. And number two, you can't even put a dent in my trust of God. I will trust in him, in his mercy forever and ever. Verse 9, I will praise you forever. He said, I'm going to keep on praising God and trusting his mercy. Because you have done it, and in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. Was David going to stop assembling with people that love God? Nope. Was he going to stop praising God? Nope. Was he going to stop hoping in the mercy of God? Nope. Didn't matter what evil men did. So he gets through it, and he gets through it well. Back to 1 Samuel, chapter 23. Saul continues to try to find David and kill him. The pursuit heats up. The chase closes, and the noose tightens in 1 Samuel, chapter 23. Look at verses 26 through 29 of that chapter. 1 Samuel 23 beginning at verse 26. Look how close it's getting. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side. David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were, were encircling David and his men to take them. It's about over. David's about done. So thinks Saul. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called the place the Rock of Escape. Did you get that? I love that. You know what that's called? Deliverance by providence. You suppose it's a coincidence that it's just at that time the Philistines attacked? I don't see the word coincidence. But I do see God acting in providence. Did God have the situation in hand? Yep. Does God have our situation in hand when we are in the worst storm of our life if we will just trust him, does he? God intervenes, gives David rest and respite, but like the devil did to Jesus, Saul does to David, waits for more opportune time. In the next chapter, in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, we see another round. Chapter 24, look with me at verses 1 through 3. 
It happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David's in the wilderness of Jedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So they came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. David and his men were hiding in caves. That's how desperate he was. Had to leave his family behind, and they're hiding in a cave. Many people have hidden in caves in the Bible. God's righteous. In fact, Hebrews 11, 37 and 38 says of God's faithful people, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Hebrews 11, 37 and 38. If you miss everything else about this morning's sermon, don't miss this. Do you know what Hebrews 11, 37, and 38 says when it talks about the righteous, they've had to hide in caves and all these other things? You know what that says? The physical hole that you may be in in your life is in no way a reflection of the spiritual health you have with God. Did you get that? It was the righteous that were hiding in the caves. Now it's David. Get this again. For the storms in your life, for the death zones, for all of that, for those overwhelming struggles, the hole you are in in your life is in no way indicative of your spiritual relationship with God because it was those who had the best spiritual relationship with God that were in those holes. Don't say, well, God's given up on me. Here I am. Oh, woe is me. Look at the mess I'm in. What a terrible situation. God's given No, he hasn't. Those with the greatest relationships were in the deepest holes in the ground. Listen, was Lot faithful to God? Was Lot a faithful man? Yes, he was. Guess what? After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, do you know where, Saul, do you know where Lot was found? Living in a cave. Genesis 19 and verse 30. There were 100 faithful prophets that Obadiah hid away from Jezebel in 1 Kings 18. Faithful prophets, guess where they were? They were in a hole. Same kind of place that David has been forced now to flee with his followers. How did David feel about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look with me in Psalm 57. I'll tell you how David felt about it. This is a victim of David when he fled from Saul into the cave, at least according to the superscription. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I could spend a long time talking about verse 1, a lot of this this morning. We could have made a whole sermon series. I'm just hitting highlights, but listen. You see what David said in verse 1? He said, God, I will make you my refuge until... These calamities have passed by. David said, no, they're going to end. I know the calamity is going to come. It's just, it's, it's a passing storm. Brethren, we need to understand in our lives, the storm will pass. We just need to hang on to God while the skies are dark. While the thunder booms, while the snow falls, while the problems arise, we just need to hang on to God, take refuge in God, because these calamities will pass. 
David said in verse 2, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. Right there, David says, I know God's got this. It doesn't matter how big my problem is. I know God's got it. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God will send forth his mercy and his truth. Now, he wasn't denying the mess he was in. Look at verse 4. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be above all the earth. They've prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've dug a pit before me. In the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. David said, they're closing the net. They're, they're right there, God. Do something. I, I know you got this. I'm just waiting to see what you do. But do you see the next verse? Look at verse 7. I love this. I start preaching in a minute. My heart, David says, even in the midst of all he's been through, and we've talked about this morning, my heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is. David said, I trust you as much now as before this whole thing started, if not more. Do you get that? My heart, I'm not moving. My faith is not moving off God. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. He said, I'm going to sing so loud, I'm going to wake the morning up. You know, you'd think when you'd read that that he's like sitting on his throne and everything's going fine. No, he's sitting in a cave. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing to you among the nations. Your mercy reaches the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and let your glory be above all the earth. Turn with me to Psalm 142. Wow. Psalm 142. This is a prayer of David when he was in the cave. I cry out, he says. To the Lord of my voice, with my voice to the Lord I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. David wasn't denying he was in trouble. But he says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. Do we, do we, when we're in our worst nightmare, when we are overwhelmed, when the snow's coming down and we're on our Mount Everest and there's nobody around and there's just a storm and we're going to die and we know it. When we're in our death zone, when we're in that place where we are just so overwhelmed, do you understand that God knows exactly where you are? You are not lost because God knows exactly where you are. When, I was, when my spirit was overwhelmed, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. He said, they've set a snare, but you know where I am. Look on my right hand and see. There's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. He felt alone. He said, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They're stronger than I am. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Look at the last line of verse 7. Had David given up on God? He said, you can take care of this, God. So, as we move on here, I want you to look with me back where we were in 1 Samuel. And we will conclude. Chapter 24, 1 Samuel.
He's in the wilderness, he's hiding in a cave. Saul comes in to attend his needs. And here he is. <laughs> Here's the guy that's been chasing David that, that, that cost him so much, killed all of his friends. And here Saul, without his guards, steps into the entrance of the cave to attend his needs. And here's David. He don't know David and his men are back in the cave. This is it. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> I don't know, myself personally, if this was God testing David or Satan tempting him. Did you ever have those times when you wondered, is this from God? Where is this coming from? And what am I supposed to do here? Because you're not really sure? Well, I'm not really sure what all this was about. Well, what I do know is this is the perfect opportunity for David to compromise his convictions. Young people, are you hearing me? This was the perfect opportunity for David to compromise his convictions. It was his opportunity to take vengeance himself. It is the perfect setup for a complete letdown. In fact, that's what David's men try to get him to do in verse 4, is kill King Saul. And here stands all the misery, all the suffering, the personification of everything bad that's happened to David. And David's, David's right. And we know what happened, don't we? David could have got him. But David would not compromise his convictions. He would not do that which he believed to be ungodly, even if it would have solved all his problems. Even if it would have made the storm go away. He would not go against God. So he cuts the corner of his robe off. We could read the rest of chapter 24, but because of time, we won't through verse 15. Saul walks out of the cave. David follows him out, hollers from a distance, and basically says, hey, check out the corner of your robe. I think there's a piece missing, my paraphrase. <laughs> That's a piece here that I just cut off my sword when you weren't paying attention. Okay? God says it better than me in the rest of the chapter, but stay with me here. And look how David winds up in verse 15. Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. Listen. If we, when we experience our worst storms and persecutions, the death zones, if you will, of our earthly lives, will simply trust God more fully. Hang on to him no matter what and do the right thing and not compromise what we know to be the right thing, then we will find the sweet deliverance and rest and peace that God has for us. If we were to read the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 24 all the way through verse 31, we'd find that David had rest from Saul. Joseph, Job, Jesus, Abraham, Elijah, Noah, Moses, the story's all the same. As we close this morning, I want to take you back to where we began. I want you to go back with me for just a moment to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, where David despaired of life because of the trouble that came to them in Asia. You know, I didn't read what came before that because I was saving it till now. Before, before the Apostle Paul goes into the troubles they had in Asia in verse 8. I want you to notice what he said before that. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. 
If we're afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we suffer. Or if you're comforted, it's for our consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake in the consolation. What is Paul's point? The point is, if you suffer like Jesus, you will be comforted like Jesus. Hang on to God like Jesus did through your storm. Where are you this morning? Spiritually, psychologically, where are you? I can see where you are physically. You feel maybe like some of those climbers on Everest that perished, do you feel cold? Feel alone? Feel deserted because you can't see where your help's to come from? Newsflash, you're not any of those things. You're not alone. Even in our trials, God knows where we are. You're not any more alone in your storm than David was in his, or the Apostle Paul was in his. Satan wants to deceive you into thinking you're alone. Because if he can single you out, he can take you down. Satan wants to deceive you into thinking you're alone, but you are not. When we realize in those situations, when we realize that and start praising God with all we've got, for his presence with us in those problems and the deliverance to come, things will always get better. Do you hear me? When we realize God is with us and we start singing his praises and we focus on the fact he's with us and we focus on what he's done and we focus on what he's going to do, those situations always change. Because we change. That all begins when we make that decision to become his child. If you're here this morning, You've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's where we become a child of God. You need to do that. Why would you want to face life without God? Life's tough enough some days with him. Amen, church? Because of our weakness, not because of his. Why would you want to face life without being a child of God? Why would you want to face judgment without Jesus as your advocate? This morning, if you're here and you've never had your sins washed away by being baptized into Christ, or maybe you're somebody who has and you just need to be stronger, you need, maybe you're in one of those awful holes, maybe you're in one of those desperate situations, maybe you're on that mountain freezing to death and you feel alone, if you need the prayers of the church to better understand that you ain't, and that God will carry you, anything we can do for you this morning, please, please, it's not that far down here, really it's not. I make this trip daily on Sunday, several times. Please come to the front as we stand and sing.